0: Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of the My Love of Golf podcast. Thank you for joining us wherever you are, around Australia or around the world. Your continued support means the world as we continue to bring you interviews and golf information from around the world with people who love golf about their love of golf. In this special interview, I catch up with one of the game's most respected golf photographers. Yes, it's Australia's very own Gary Lisbon. Gary and I caught up a little while ago to discuss the world of golf course photography and his monumental 13-week trip around the UK and Europe, capturing amazing imagery from dozens of iconic golf courses. We held back the release of that chat until now, and I'm glad we did, as it now gives us the opportunity to highlight the launch of Gary's latest photo book. It's a coffee table book, or should I say a masterpiece, a truly sensational book that includes images from 15 years of Gary's work all presented in a unique landscape format which really shows the full visual impact of the courses captured. If you are like me and love stunning golf images, then you will love Gary's book titled Great Golf Courses of the World. It's available now and the details on how to get it are in the show notes below. We'll also be putting together a giveaway to give one lucky My Love of Golf follower the chance to win one of Gary's new books. More on that in the following weeks. So. Whether you're a regular listener or a new listener of My Love of Golf, of course, we really appreciate the time that you take to listen. What always helps the podcast greatly is if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. That would be an awesome help as we move into this important next phase of the My Love of Golf podcast. Okay, if you love Gary's images, then you will hopefully love getting to know a little bit more about the Gary Lisbon that I've had the pleasure of getting to know. Time to sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Gary Lisbon.
1: Gary Lisbon, it's great to see you. Thanks again for joining us on the podcast and uh, here for the video. You've got this great book in front of you. Now, when we met uh, yeah. for the conversation, the chat about your trip and my trip last year, we didn't have this book. We uh, didn't, did we? <laughs> But I'm pretty sure that the book was very much in your mind at that stage. Talk to us about this beautiful book that we've got here. I'm here picking them up with Gary. Um, we're going to do a little bit of a giveaway with one of the books, When I bought a couple for myself, and it's absolutely fantastic. Tell us about you know, putting this book together. It's, you're right, we didn't have this book last
2: year. It's a 15-year culmination of images that I've captured from around the world, just showing the diversity of golf around the world. And it is so diverse, as you know, from traveling. And uh, so we've put it together. The bulk shipment arrived about a week ago. We're getting orders out the door. The response has been amazing and I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. So it's
1: been a big effort. We've just sat inside there and had you know, a thumb through, a very quick thumb through. I can't wait to get it home and you know, just download on the uh, content that's in there. There's some beautiful photos from all the parts of the world that I want to go to or have been <laughs> and want to go back to. You know, when, when you were traveling around and doing the trip that we'll hear about in a second, is making this book part of your thoughts as you're driving? Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. It's, uh, as I say,
2: a 15-year dream and you look at where you want to go and we anchored this trip based on Lofoten links up in Norway yep. for the Northern Lights and also the Open Championship at St Andrews and in between was a whole bunch of visits to, I think, 89 golf courses on our last trip. But again, this incorporates places that we didn't go on our last trip like South Africa and throughout Asia and, and New Zealand and so on. It's not your first book. There's... No. There's,
1: what are the other uh, catalogues in the uh, title? T-
2: really creative names, so uh, Great Golf Down Under Volume
1: 1, Volume 2, and Volume 3. Very and then Great Golf Courses of the World. So, If, if someone wants to buy the book, uh, and sales have been going great, I believe, how do you buy Great Golf Courses of the World?
2: Yep, generally buy it online. We've got a website, greatgolfcoursesoftheworld.com, and you can purchase, we ship all around the world uh, automatically for you. You can go into a bunch of uh, retail outlets, some drum and golf outlets, and just uh, other places generally. So the golf clubs that are featured within, a lot of the Australian ones will also hold stock. But the easiest way is probably the website, direct shipping to you. What are the favorite images? Uh, I, I mentioned, Too hot? no, well, yes and no. I mentioned Lafoten Links in Norway. If, if you haven't been there as a golf lover, it is extraordinary. Northern lights at night most amazing setting for a golf course built by someone that had a dream of a six-hole golf course that turned into a nine hole that turned into an 18 hole so the images of La are fantastic up around Scotland whether it's your places like Muirfield, down south in Ireland like like old head just the drama of the setting but I think also continental Europe was something that blew me away places like the Netherlands and in France and and Spain and so on different kinds of golf experiences
1: Now one thing that, uh, if you're watching this on the video, obviously you can't hear it on the audio, but um, the book is it's not your traditional book shape, is it? No, it's not. I reckon that's a great bit of marketing because, you know, there's one place that this book's not going to be able to sit, and it's going to have to sit front and center in front of everyone on a coffee table. It, Tell us about the shape.
2: It's of. very true. It won't, and I tried to do it. I tried to sit it in a bookshelf and it doesn't sit. <laughs> no. So it's panoramic in style and it actually folds upwards. So you'll see that all the images present in this kind of way. So uh, that's something a little bit different. I won't, I won't claim it's my idea. Um, Fellow photographer, a guy called Ken Duncan, who many of you will know, has produced um, a book along these lines. But I thought that the nature of panoramic images of a golf course should be represented uh, in a panoramic
1: style. So it's worked well. Well, Gary, I can't wait to get it home and, and go through. And you know, you've been an absolute huge supporter of, of mine in you know being an amateur photographer and having an interest in you know a world that you make your living out of. Um, you know, your little messages and and the comments around when you think i've taken a great photo um really do appreciate it and it means the world to me don't
2: don't undersell yourself you are a very good photographer roscoe and you know you have an eye you have a passion and i just encourage you to
1: keep doing it i appreciate that Um, and i also appreciate your very kind gesture of giving us one of these books that we're going to do we'll work on a great giveaway um which we'll do after this uh episode which you know you'll be able to go in the running to to get this great book, great golf courses of the world. Gary, thanks very much for joining us to celebrate the launch of this wonderful book. And now, here's Gary and I talking about our trip last year where some of the images in this book were captured and conceived. Gary and I. Gary Lisbon. Thanks, us. Welcome
0: to the My Love of Golf podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you joining us here today. We've been chatting for a little bit about doing this, but, uh, you know, it seems like we've been chatting for a while because, you know, I followed with great intensity your trip to Scotland uh, and to many other parts of the golfing uh, world in Europe. I was there at the same time and, uh, you know, there's a few message exchanges and we must have felt like we were driving past each other at points, but we'll talk about that. Gary, how are you? Welcome.
2: Thank you, thanks Ross. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's a wonderful honour. I sort of love watching, listening to your podcast and uh, the diversity of people that you're interviewing. And humbled to be to be one of those. So I think you're right. You're right. We were uh, we're in Scotland, and as we were just saying, we probably passed each other on different roads. You going down the road, me going up the road.
0: Well, without turning into a a travel brochure for Scotland, uh, we'll talk about some of those destinations. But firstly, I guess you know I think a lot of people. That know me, know the podcast, you know, know my developing love for um, looking at golf through the lens. And I think it's really helped me appreciate uh, golf at a greater level by, you know, just taking time to, you know, view a golf course in a certain way. And a lot of people know you as you know, Gary Lisbon, golf photographer. But I know you over the, the journey with your other party business, Golf Select. You know, what? Tell us a little bit about Golf Select, and then we'll talk about the photography part.
2: Sure, uh, and probably a background even before that. Chartered accountant, worked for KPMG for many years. Got out of that, worked with Ian Baker Finch for a short period of time, and then started Golf Select. So focusing on running corporate events, importing golf giftware, that then morphed into into golf holidays for people around the world. And photography was the passion that became a pretty big part of our business.
0: And that golf select business, that's probably where I first came came across you. You know, Obviously, you run the golf days. If uh, any of the Mercedes-Benz drivers here have been on a yeah. Mercedes-Benz golf day, you've been doing them for a number of years. So that's where I first uh, came, came across. And you do a wonderful job uh, doing those golf days. And, and not just for the car companies, but for all the people that you do them for. And I think when I saw you last, the Peninsula Kingswood one. So great yeah. stuff. It's a skill morphing morphing a passion into a business. Yeah, it's certainly what I've tried to do, you know, investing in a, in a golf business, i.e. drum and golf, and then trying to expand that level of interest. And, and I guess basically for me, bring my experiences through podcasts, through my experiences in the shop, just to uh, give people a little bit more of an insight into, into that world. And I guess for me, looking at golf through the lens now is a little bit more of that, you know, for you, you're very, very giving with the work that you do uh, in your photography space and, you know, you share a lot of it and a lot of people uh, love that. What is it about golf photography that you think people are so uh, enamoured with and so drawn towards? What are are your sort of appreciation and uh, impact of that?
2: I mean, you look at golf around the world, Ross, and it's so different. It's so diverse and I think that's what, what golfers love. They love a feeling as though they're in the image that they're viewing at hand. So to date, I think I've photographed 650 odd courses in 25 different countries, and they're all different. Whether it's golf in South Africa compared to golf in Norway, Scotland, Australia, etc., it's all different. So we all share a common love and and frustration uh, with with golf, I think, and and being able to show that visually really creates a sense of, gee, I want to be there. It's sort of that, wow, wouldn't it be great to be there? And I think with social media forums such as Instagram, we're seeing where everyone is. So I'm seeing where you are and people are seeing where I might be and they're just commenting and it's just a nice little back and forth interaction.
0: Was the photography part of your life, you know, is that just a a passion that developed or, you (laughs) know, It was had, had, no, no,
2: no, yeah, no formal training. Just a case of uh, getting up Kingston Heath. I think was one of the first courses I took photos of, and it was just in a very informal basis. Went out with my little snap camera, took some photos that the club thought were okay, and uh, and then if you sort of fast forward to actually Gavin Kirkman before he became the head of the PGA was uh, at Lakelands, and he said, "Why don't you come up here and do some some photos?" And I did some photos for them, uh, and then I went up to. Um, to far north Queensland, up to Paradise Palms. And I still remember Michael Waters at the time was saying, hey, Gary, with these photos, can you sign a photo so that when you're you're famous, uh, I can look back on it. And I just sort of laughed because I never viewed the photography as part of the business. It was just a passion. I loved getting out, taking photos, but it it morphed pretty quickly from a passion into a a very big part of our business.
0: So how long did it take to become, you know, Gary – with at Kingston Heath with a, a snap camera into, you know Gary, world renowned, globally recognised provider of photography for the some of the world's best golf courses.
2: Yeah, just just a gradual thing. I think, as I say, I think once I started thinking of myself as a golf course photographer rather than just a happy snapper. That's when I got a bit more serious. I got a business card printed and then I thought, okay, maybe I am a golf course photographer. And then it's just the passage of time. It's probably three or four years to get uh, known within the Sandbelt region, which is where I I live. That then morphs into the rest of Australia. It pops over to places like Cowrie Cliffs and Cape Kidnappers. Some of the stuff I did there not with drones but with helicopters back in the in the day and then morphing into into the worldwide scene, first the UK, then into Europe, USA, etc. and the whole social media um, scenario provides that forum to showcase your images on a worldwide basis.
0: You continue to travel and experience <laughs> golf around the world, and some of those destinations you return to. I know when i returned obviously recently to scotland you know i went to a number of places that i've visited before i enjoy the fact that i can go there and i always see something different does that oh, yeah. ha- does that happen for you or how does that
2: yeah very much so i think the first time you go to a place like scotland you're going to want to tick off all your marquee courses your open rotor courses you want to go to st andrews you want to go to to other places like the the Ayrshire coast with turnbury and, Troon and and those kinds of places. But then maybe on a subsequent trip, you might then go up to the Highlands. You go up to Dornock, you go up to Brora, you visit Castle Stewart. Uh, So for me, over the seven or eight times I've been to Scotland, it's been a gradual process of first ticking off all of the, the main courses, but then in subsequent visits going to places that I may not have seen before or been before. And that's what's been so cool about it. I was just looking at my photography summary of scotland i think 54 courses are the number of courses i've photographed in scotland now certainly there are a lot more than that but you know i'm looking uh ardfin boat of Garten, broora Carnoustie, ely Dundonald dunbar all those kinds of places it's great the high level stuff is great but also the under the radar stuff is arguably what i like more and you probably feel the same way that there's some real gems out there that people don't know about
0: oh i definitely uh feel that way and I would love to spend more time there and, and I will get that chance to spend a lot of time in Scotland and and do all of that but you know it's, it's not going to be a photograph course and I've spoken about it before but there's a place in Dunbar called Winterfield now you know you love Dunbar okay. golf course around the coast yeah. a bit. just back the way towards North Berwick there's another little course and it's largely a public course called Winterfield and it's just relatively flat but it's up on the cliff you know on that coastline small pot bunkers everywhere so traditional links it's off fescue um i played in a fairly benign day but I, you can imagine that coast it's always windy and, and you know the conditions are there and it's 30 pounds if if that yeah. to go and play there yeah. and i flew the drone there i took some photos and and I, I was there with my uncle and my uncle's brother-in-law and that sort of thing and it, just, it was just magnificent and there are dozens of courses like that, that no one's ever heard of and no one ever would ever go to on a destination golf trip. But I just loved it and really just, for me, it was the opportunity to sort of stand back and say, there's not just the high-end links, there's just golf. Yeah. Golf is part of that Scottish DNA and people walk to the course and all of that sort of thing. So, you know, Ely's a little bit like that, although it's, I've, I've loved watching courses as people like yourself have highlighted them. Elevate in the desirability of going there. Ely, I think, is one of those, and those courses along that Fife coast of I, yeah. I'd never heard of fifteen years ago, and not that I was that involved in golf about fifteen years ago, but I'd never heard of. And I think you know yourself and Evan and and Nick and all of those guys that you know are doing great work have just elevated them to this next level, and I think they should be very thankful of 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 you know your work. For, to be honest.
2: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that course. Uh, Another one along that route is the Glen, which is the other course at North Berwick. Not the renowned links, but the other links, that's perched right up on on the cliffs. You get some amazing... Vista's over the course there, and it punches above its weight. And the green green for your right it's probably 40, 45 pounds. It's just ludicrous.
0: I, I haven't played at the Glen. I've been there. I took my dad there mm. uh, in 2019, and we, we walked up to the, you know, where you can yeah. park the car and, and walk up there, and I sure. haven't played. So for me, uh, not playing the Glen is a great reason to go back. I, I love that's sort of the mindset that I, have the, have, I haven't played there. It just means that I've got to go back there. Uh, yourself and Maureen, you know, had this trip of a lifetime you know to explore not just scotland but a lot of the parts of europe give us a an insight into you know the snapshot of the itinerary what that looked like and was it set in stone beforehand or was it a moving feast did it evolve
2: well it's a yeah good question uh COVID obviously mucked up a variety of travel plans for everyone around the world but we determined that okay this was going to be the year and a whole lot of things Fed together to create this 13-week trip. So first thing to to do was try and convince Maureen that she should be out of Australia for 13 weeks, which wasn't more like a hey we're going to be out for 13 weeks. It's more progress. Let's Maureen, can we go out for nine weeks, ten weeks, and gradually it built up to 13 weeks? But there were two anchor points in the in the whole itinerary. One was the Open Championship at St Andrews. Uh, which was obviously middle of July, and the other one was getting to Norway and a place called Lofoten Lynx, at the end of August, early September, so that we get the, uh, the the Northern Lights. They were the two anchor points, and then we wrapped everything else around that. Supplementing that was some work that I'd been trying to do for a number of courses in Spain, Valderrama, Sotogrande, and a course in in Madrid called Puerto Hierro, where we just couldn't get there because of COVID. So We sort of fed those in, and we gradually supplemented the itinerary that way. We then added uh, the rest of Scotland. We added in some island stuff. Uh, England, which just quietly punches so far above its way. It is such a good golf destination, England, and it just gets overshadowed by Scotland and Ireland, big time, and then into Europe, and then into sort of continental Europe, like your France, Netherlands, there's some great stuff there, Uh, Sweden, Denmark, Um, and and Norway, obviously. So it it came together over maybe a four-month period. You then have to sort of juggle things like availability and logistics and travel back and forth with planes and trains and automobiles. But it all came together well, and we only had one one set of lost golf clubs. That's it. Uh, Three days.
0: And you had to drive – you know, you, you, were, you were chasing up the airline. You were, you were being, you know, very proactive in getting your gear back because there was obviously a small window between when you had to leave that destination, move to the next. So, you know, I remember following that and seeing, you know, asking the question, you know, should you stay, should you go, should you get them? Yeah. And they, they turned up, you know, the airport was 50 miles away, but the, the luggage was actually like five miles away. What was the story there?
2: I was insane. First thing for all uh, everyone listening, put an air tag in your golf bag. Hands down, it's the best monitoring device ever. So that's what saved me. We were going from Shannon in Southwest Ireland through Heathrow and into Charles de Gaulle in Paris. So the clubs got to London, but they never got to Paris. And we then had to start tracking them. The airline had no idea where they were. I had more of an idea about where they were than the airline did. We were heading south of Paris to a place called Le Borde. And uh, I was over breakfast the next morning. I just had a casual look at the air tag to see where it was, thinking that it should be north of Paris, up around the area. But here it is, was 30 miles south of where we were. And I'm thinking, what's going on? Did some pushing, did some ringing around, um, screamed a little bit, and then finally determined that the clubs were sitting in a warehouse about half an hour away from me. So I drove down there was reunited with my club's caught it all on video and it provided some nice fodder for social media
0: look uh, I think I think you were very lucky to get them back as soon yes. as you did because you know there was no secret especially you know you travel with the group you had a group of clients over there for yeah. the open who I assume were there for golf as well. Um, we all know what happened post the Open when, you know, half of the golfing world just descended on probably mainly Edinburgh Airport, but maybe Glasgow Airport, but Edinburgh Airport copped the brunt of it. And yeah. I even think still to this day there is uh, a warehouse full of, you know, golf travellers, golf clubs that all got left behind. So I think that was a pretty fortunate outcome that, uh, you know, the old air tag uh, seemed to save you.
2: It did indeed. We had one client, Natalie, who I was chatting to her last week. We're talking from July to November. They still haven't found her golf clubs. And then just after that, they said, yeah, we found them, but you need to come back to to England and get them yourself at your own cost. We're not going to ship them to you. So she filed an insurance claim and and got new, new clubs. So it was extremely frustrating. And you would have all seen the photos in the paper of golf flags piled high and frustration, I can imagine how frustrating it would have been not to have your clubs.
0: On that trip, were there any – what were the courses that you hadn't been to uh, before? There were probably the, – if there were many, you know, what were the ones that was the standout ones that you just had to get to that you hadn't been to?
2: There's a couple. Um, ardfin on the island of Jura, which is a, a Bob Harrison-designed course. Um, I love that for the fact that it's so difficult to get to, and I think we as golfers love the – the challenge of getting to places, you know, in an Australian landscape, it was going to be initially places like Bamboogle and King Island, but they're an absolute breeze compared to getting to something like Jura, where uh, Ardfen is, or even Lofoten links where uh, up in Norway. So, you know, ardfin is wonderfully opulent, six-star accommodation, a very, very good challenging golf course, two-hour ferry ride from the mainland to the island of Islay, then another little car ferry onto the island of Jura, then you drive and, and you're there. So I love that sort of element. Uh, Loch Lomond, I went back to Loch Lomond, hadn't been there for for 10 years and just realised how special special that was. Just going through my list here, um, I went to a place called uh, Anstruther this time, which uh, Jeff Shackelford, I saw, was talking about having the world's hardest path three. And I can attest to... That pretty tough 250-yard par three right along the water. Again, nothing fancy in terms of being a golf course, but just a really nice experience. London links, Levin links, etc. Um, Where else? Getting back to that whole Ayrshire coast is great. Places like Western Gales that, again, sits probably in the shadow of its more illustrious rivals like... Um, like Troon and Turnbury. Getting there was pretty special as well. And then in East Lothian, you've got some wonderful stuff. You know, North Berwick's one of my favourite courses, but really enjoy Mulefield as well. So there's a whole abundance of places. Dunbarney Lynx was another new kid on the Black Bolt block that I visited just south of St Andrews, uh, sort of modelled on that King's Barn pay-for-play kind of scenario. Um, yeah, and probably one I'm looking over here now is Musselburgh. So world links around the the golf around the race track. So 7 years earlier I'd been there and I had the drone but didn't put it up. So I, I was saying to myself okay I need to get a sunrise shot of the race course with the golf course in the middle and I managed to get that. So it's quite satisfying.
0: I think the sun gods, you know, must have been allocating all of the sun to you on that trip and and none to the, you know, the rank amateurs like me because, you know, I was there with the drone. I actually bought a new drone to go over there. You know, the drone, we'll talk about drones in a sec, but I read up that the drone laws are quite strict over there. You know, I've got the, you know, there's a couple of licenses here in Australia which you can have just the basic stuff and then the next one and then the next one, I'm in the middle there, so, you know, under two kilos. But I bought a new one um yeah djr we all fly djr drones a little 249 yep. gram drone which basically gave yep. you a lot of freedom and it was a really super powerful drone um i got up at 4 a.m one morning a couple of mornings uh to go down to i wanted to do north berwick uh mule um no what was the, the, the sequence M- um mule and then okay. drive down to north berwick and then i was playing yep. it I was playing at Dunbar that morning, so I thought I'll get the sun at one of those places. No sun. I tried to do the same another day. Got up early. Eh, no sun. And then when, as we said before, we were crossing paths, you were there. Always sun. I was like, you always got the sun. Is there a special, you know, what do you, how do, what do you use to always get the sun? <laughs>
2: We were blessed, Roscoe. A lot of prayer went into, into that. But you're right, we were away for 102 days, and I think we had two and a half days of rain during that time that affected golf course. Now, just because you don't have rain doesn't mean you've got uh, good conditions. So obviously cloud cover is a big one, particularly in places like Scotland. But it didn't always work. It uh St. Patrick's Links over in uh, in Ireland, which is a wonderful new course, at part of the Rosapenna uh, resort. There, I had two and a half minutes of sunshine over four days. So you know, it doesn't always work. But no, we were we were really blessed to get the majority of courses that I needed to get done. We had the right to the right weather. Yeah. You mentioned about also you also mentioned about drones and everyone's got a drone now, don't they? Everyone puts a drone in the sky and thinks, gee, I'm a golf course photographer. But increasingly you've got those regulation issues about where you can fly drones, where you can't. And I I actually did a fair bit of study and, and became an EU certified drone pilot. And then um, became also a UK um, certified pilot because the two are separate in addition to what you have, similar to me in Australia, the, the REPL and the RIOC, so meaning we can fly. But you think that's it. You then go to a place like Spain, and that's a whole other level because in Spain you need someone with you. The golf clubs had to hire someone that stood alongside me while I did the shooting for 10 days. Well, what was
0: so, the, the background for that? You know, what was the reason for that? Because I, I remember once again we were, I saw that and I thought, wow, that it was like a military operation
2: it was a military operation that that also got changed at the last minute because they had a NATO meeting in Madrid meaning that they imposed a 5 to heat exclusion zone you can't fly drones within 5 days before and after the NATO meeting and that's when i was due to be there so we had to chop and change around our our timings but they're just rules that the spanish authorities in particular have and uh it, it was a great cost to the golf club to get someone uh, on board to stand alongside me, but he did all the appropriate paperwork and, and we made it happen. So I would caution any of your listeners, don't just put a drone up. It's pretty scary, the ramifications, especially around airfields. Just be really, really careful about that and observe and understand. What the regulations are, because the penalties are huge, but also the safety issues are there.
0: Yeah, no, ex- exactly, and it's it's something I've become obviously more and more conscious of, right from the first time that I, I put a drone up and started to realise, you know, this just isn't a toy, um <clears throat> and you know, so my even my little drone, you know, had uh, a special number and it was registered and yeah. i had to do the test over there, and even though I'm not sure the two forty nine, you know, your your big drone, you know, I've got my big drone there, it's a kilo, a couple of a kilo, maybe a kilo. Um, my my other little one's two forty nine grams. That, that, it was bizarre because you can seemingly fly that anywhere, over yeah. people and all that sort of thing. But the bigger drone, you can't. But um, what I what I know and notice now, as you say, everyone's got a drone, everyone can put it up. Is people are flying drones over golf courses, and you know, I saw a photo yesterday, and I just scratched my head, um, taking photos of people's houses, for example. And, like, it's just, to me, it seems like a big no-no. Just because there's a nice house next to a golf course, you know, it might, you might think it looks like a nice photo, but it's someone's house and, and yeah. someone lives there. And it's not something that you – if you take a photo of it, it's not something that really either should be shared. But certainly the laws and the licenses, are like, you don't take photos of people's houses. It's against the rules. And it, I, get, I get worried about when I see that that it makes people like me, who are very much an amateur, look bad.
2: Oh, it does, yeah. Privacy is paramount. And the, the problem with all of these renegades who are doing things that they shouldn't be doing is that it then causes the authorities to come down harder on mm. on the industry as a whole and put other hoops that we need to jump through. So I think the, the licensing and the regulations have got better over time, certainly. And companies like DJI have done a better job at geofencing and preventing you travelling within certain areas, particularly around a- airstrips. So when I was in uh, on the Lancashire case, uh, coast, sort of around Birkdale, Birkdale and so on, and went out to Formby. Um, there's a, a raft base there called Woodvale, had to get the application, had to get the approval, do all that kind of stuff. Same at, uh, at Lytham as well. But you do it the right way, they give you the access. Um, but at a place like Formby, even there, that had sort of limitations as to where you could go. And thankfully, the drones these days won't go into areas that uh, that you are not allowed to go into.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I definitely uh, learned that uh, near a football stadium. Funnily enough, uh, in, in <laughs> yeah. Edinburgh, there's a football stadium not far from there. And actually, I support the team, and and I was conscious that I couldn't go over there, but I was near there because my mother-in-law is near there, and and yeah. basically just shut me down straight away. Said you can't take off here. Well, fair enough. So um, yeah. You're right. Gary mentioned Ardfin there, and uh, you know you were on the way out to Ardfin. We probably crossed paths. You were going on the, fer- the ferry at Kenneth Craig across there. I was going on the ferry from Clonaig uh, back to um, uh, the Isle of Arran, Lochranza. Yeah. And uh, you are on the big ferry there. You get out to to Jura um, and you've got Ardfin. The lo- the part that I love about that place, not I haven't been there. One day, maybe, maybe not. You know, it's probably unobtaining for me. But it's two Aussies. It's two Aussies on a Scottish Isle in the west coast of Scotland. Bob Harrison, uh, the the course designer, architect, and builder, and then um, yep. Mr. Coffee, who's the owner. Yes. Uh, it, it's insane, you know. Like, did you, have you meet? Greg, did you meet Greg or? Did no, you, no, no,
2: he he, he wasn't there. He uh, was somewhere else in the world. But I've known Bob for many many years, and. During the development of the course, Bob was telling me about this course he's building for an, an Aussie guy and it's going to be this and you have to get this ferry and that ferry and that ferry and do all of those things. And I'm sort of going, wow, this is hard. And then you sort of plan the trip yourself and you have a fuller understanding and appreciation of the effort to get to it. But it's a very, very special, special property. I was reading yesterday that George Orwell uh, actually wrote part of his book 1984 on the island of Jura. Uh, so it's renowned for that, but also for whiskey. There's some distilleries there. But aside from that, it's it's a very big island that has a single-lane road that goes around the whole island. You've got a variety of passing bays that happen every couple of hundred metres, not much traffic. But next door, the island of Islay, where another course called the Macri uh, was, was that was that was great because we weren't originally going to go there. We were going to get the, the foot... Ferry from Tavalek, I think, up to the top of Jura and then drive and get driven down. But we decided to get the car ferry in, so having the opportunity to visit and stay at the Macri was really, really cool as
0: well. Once again, I, I got as far as uh, Macrahanish, and um, yeah, yeah, you know, that's good. Love Macrahanish. It was. Everyone knows that's listened to me, you know, talk about Scotland and Scottish golf and the trips, you know, know that I fell in love with Macrahanish. Um, you know, previous to that, it was probably a course in Ireland. That was my drop me anywhere, drop me anywhere place. And I'll stay there for a, a month, a year or whatever. It was, um, uh, Lehinch, but I'm pretty sure it might yep. be Campbelltown and Macrahanish there now. Um, good people there as well, uh, and I always give him a shout out when we talk about Macrahanish. But uh, Robbie Wilson down there, he's the Scotland's great unofficial ambassador for uh, the Mole of Kintyre and that whole peninsula. Um, he loves he loves it when I say his name. He he always he always tweets that and says he'll he'll put, he'll put this out and say you know minute 27. Uh, yes, listen to that part. Um, very good. <laughs> um, be, best
2: know. opening tee shot, don't you think? Oh. Now, granted, that, that opening tee shot just is one for the
0: ages. It's it's just a special place. So the whole the whole place. I just loved it. You obviously went to the Open and you had a couple of days there. It was a special Open for uh, golf. It was a special Open for us Aussies, you know, with obviously Camp Smith winning. How did your guests that you had there uh, for the travel part of the the um, trip experience it? How how what was their feedback? You know, maybe oh, it's amazing.
2: Yeah, it, it was just amazing. We we went on Saturday, Sunday. We saw on Saturday everything was lipping out for Cam Smith. Nothing was really dropping. We then went in there with sort of expectations that something may happen, but a four shot four shot lead, I think it was to Rory and and Victor. It's pretty hard to peg back. And then we started watching Cam early, and nothing was happening. Nothing was really was going. And he missed a should have made birdie on nine. Nothing happened there. And then, bang, he went on that tear, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Extraordinary. Those putts that he held, the way that he did it. But for me, it was that up and down on 17 that was ex- extraordinary, as, we, as we've as we all seen. Miss, miss the green left. You can't go over the road bunker, so what do you do? You putt up and you truss your putt into 10, 12 feet and you hold the putt. Maureen and I went back to that spot a couple of days after the open because we were in St Andrews after the open as well. And we just sort of tried to map it out what would we do um so again just he was so calm under pressure that there was no, never a change in his demeanor it was always the same focused look discussed with his caddy without any real emotion and he just ex- executed brilliantly so all of our cli- all of our clients that came with us loved that you know we're in the in the area where the big tvs are and the merchandise um, spaces as well post open, and here we are, a bunch of Aussies cheering and yelling and screaming, and many, many others that were there that were just giving us death stares because obviously they wanted Rory to win. Special,
0: yeah, it was a special, special, special time. But I remember that part of. Uh... You know the facility where you were near the merch tent. You know the merch tent sold out of merch within about three days, so yeah. you couldn't you couldn't buy anything. Uh, there was a few bars and and whatnot there, but it was packed. Like yeah, you know, if you think about a big Grand Prix here in Melbourne, you know if you've ever bought been to a Grand Prix, there was there was more people than that. There was like several times more people. It was just. It was a massive party atmosphere. I th- I felt I watched from the other side um, those last two holes. And I, I definitely got the sense that there was a lot of love for, for Cam. I think people were disappointed that Rory didn't win. I think they were probably over, overridingly Rory fans. And, you know, Rory's had a great great year in golf at with. But um, I definitely felt there was a lot of Cam love. Maybe the Aussies were over there. I got down on the 18th and just seemed to be surrounded by Aussies. And uh, it, was, it was a great experience. Let's talk about some of the other parts of the trip. You, you mentioned uh, Lofoten links up in uh, Sweden. Is it Sweden? Yeah. Uh, Norway. 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 Sorry, my, my bad. Yeah. Um, I've seen it on Eric's videos. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's once again for me. It's probably a, a place of unobtainium, but you know to see you there for the first time what was that like, you know, how's the journey to get there? What, what, you know, like, how do you get there and what happens when you do get there, you know, talk about the Northern lights, you know, like it's,
2: you're right. We see these destinations from when other people showcase them. So Eric Anders Lang, a mutual friend of both of ours, um, did a great doco on that. So look that up on YouTube. Wonderful. But then another guy called Jakob Schloman, who's a photographer that I admire greatly, Swedish, Swedish guy. Um, took a wonderful photo of the second hole path three out to a promontory with the the northern lights in the background and I said to myself at that time that I first saw that image gee I want to get there and I want to capture um similar shots just be wonderful to to have the northern lights in in shot so that sort of put the the thought in my head and as I said at the start of the the episode they were the two anchor points the open and then Lafotten links and, and Lafotten and Links. A month or two earlier, so July, it's pretty much landed the midnight sun. So you're playing golf at two a.m., three a.m. in the morning. Uh, Victor Hovland went there and shot the course record, sixty-three. Drove the first path four over the water, made eagle in tough conditions, and shoots sixty-three. We said, okay, we need to be there end of August. How do you get there? We're in uh, we're in Copenhagen doing some work for Royal Copenhagen Golf Course, which actually just as an aside is is a private golf course in a deer preserve that has two and a half thousand deer and i'm talking the deer that have the tall tall antlers these are scary looking things so that was quite interesting but you fly from copenhagen up to oslo you then fly from oslo on a two-hour flight up to venice or harstad you then hop in a car and drive on the other side of the road with these huge timber lorry trucks coming the other way at 100 kilometres an hour on roads are about this this narrow. And you eventually get to Lofoten Links at 10.30 at night and you, you're just thankful to be there. You then uh, stay in one of their beautiful lodges they have on site. You wake up the next morning and you're just in awe you're an absolute awe of this this place. That Froda Hov is the one of the owners there and the, the visionary behind it. It was a six-hole golf course that turned into a nine-hole golf course that then became an 18-hole golf course. And pound for pound, it is arguably one of the most visually spectacular places I've been in my life. And you know, you know me, I love Cypress Point, and that is just amazing. I just I dream now about Lafotte and Lynx, Ross. I'm sorry. I just get up and I just go, oh, remember that. And I take photo. I took some photos with the Northern Lights. But, again, that's hard. I take my hat off to Yaka because he had a tripod and all of that stuff. I was tr- doing all of this handheld, trying to get long exposures, trying to get the lights and get everything in focus. So, so I got a couple of shots um, that are nice. But what a place. Hard to get to. Very short season. But... You must go there. You have to go there.
0: I will, I will get there. I will get there. I'll make it my purpose to get there. Good. Well, you know, that part of the world, summertime, Scotland, north of Scotland, obviously up there in yeah. Norway and Scandinavia, as you mentioned before, you know, the the, day, the days are long and that's – a great yeah. part that's a great part of you know being a golfer over there being a photographer yeah you know, when you, when you want <laughs> rise, and, rise and fall of sun did you ha- actually have any sleep when you're on that whole trip?
2: It, you run on adrenaline and you're right the sun's getting up at four-ish four thirty ish and it's going to bed at 10 30 ish so in between you need to sleep and I don't know how I did it you just I think we probably averaged about maybe four and a half five hours a night for maybe a couple of months period, um, maybe some odd naps during the day. But I think I was just adrenaline focused more and just couldn't believe that I was doing what I was doing every morning and every every night. But you do it because you know you're in the, in the place for just a short period of time. And if the weather is anything half decent, you know you want to be there because if you're not, uh, you're going to get up the next morning and go, oh, what could have been if I just had have got up, I would have got these amazing photos. You
0: yeah. just do it. Do what's needed. Sleep is overrated. First of all, problems. You yeah, know, talking about traveling the golf golf photography. But um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I thought about that a lot of times when I was following your posting. I thought, you yeah, know, Gary's not Gary's not sleeping here because you know, you've got to you know, you've got to be on the road at four o'clock to um to be ready. Yeah, you mentioned something there before, uh, and Jakob. Who credit to to Jakob? You know, he is one of the handful of the golf photography community. Um, and there are there are a number of people, but Jakob, very much so. If you send him a message, he replies. Yeah. He is so yeah. giving of, of his time. And you know, I remember I, I asked him about a uh, a photo once, and I was just curious about what length lens um, he took that on. And you know, within within a day, you know, he's you know got an answer back. And and I really respect and appreciate that. You're exactly the same. I, I imagine you must get bombarded with messages from you know, amateur golf photographers and people who who are wanting to know about the destinations um, and you're always, you know, very giving of your of your messages and, and responses. Um, we talk about gear, you know, so you said up there and you're hand-holding um, and to capture light and, and so on and so forth, you know, exposure times, you know, if there's any movement in the camera, it just can ruin a photo. What sort yeah. of gear did you travel with for, you know, this length of time?
2: Again, you're traveling for 13 weeks, so... You can only travel with so much stuff. So, from a drone perspective, I don't have a big drone. I have the Mavic 3, which is a great compact drone, very, very um, powerful in terms of image resolution and quality. So, there's the, the drone with a smart controller. Cameras take a couple of bodies. I, I have Canon, so Canon 5D Mark Three and Mark IV, and then a few lenses, um, uh, 16 to 16 to. 38, 35, I think, uh, 24 to 105 and a 70 to 200. So that's sort that's sort of it. And then lots of batteries, particularly for the drone. And you put it all into a into a backpack and you try and carry it on the plane rather than check it in. Yep. So you know you've got it at the other end because that in itself an issue, isn't it? That here we are going over to a place for a photo shoot. If they lose your luggage, you could buy a photo shoot. So that's it, sort of a nice stable, um, small compact, Suite of, uh, of of equipment that just helps, but can I go back on um, one point you mentioned about responding on social and to comments that come in? Yeah, sure. I think it's I think it's so important, Ross. Um, you're right about Yarkov and people like Kevin Murray and Evan Schiller and those guys and, and Nick Wall as well. My contemporaries. I, I really love bouncing interactions back and forth with them, asking them questions. But then also there's the people that follow you and they ask questions as well and they might be starting out in their photographic journey and it's it's great to be able to give something back because I remember what I was like way back at the beginning where I knew nothing and this one person who's a good friend who sticks in my head, a guy called David Cannon, who you would know one of the, the best photographers going around. Yeah, many, many um, uh, opens and there's, masters. There's, yeah.
0: There's his book, the Sevy book. Right, there. Yes, there Yeah,
2: exactly, a sevy book as well. So David and I, I was at Cowrie Cliffs with Maureen and David was there shooting a book, coffee table book, and he went up in Julian Robertson's helicopter and he said to me, just a little beginning photographer, do you want to come up with me? And he then showed me a few things. We had the door off, we were hanging out the door and I've still got some of the best images of Cowrie that I've ever seen. But he took the time out to spend that time with me to to understand and to, just to help me. And what was even more amusing was we were at Hoylake, Royal Liverpool. We were staying down the road in an, a Holiday Inn and I walk out to do an evening photo shoot. Bang, who do I bump into? But David Cannon, he's there shooting some stuff for the Open next year. So we had a good catch-up. So I think it's important um, if people spend time investing in you, you need to do that to to the next
0: generation. So
2: I don't mind. I try where possible to answer any any comment on social media that people might have?
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I, I don't get a lot of uh, questions about photos, but I get a lot of questions about Peninsula Kingswood and how to play there, and yeah. can we play there? And it's not possible to take everyone on, but um, you know, we've just uh, had uh, David Jones on there for, the first, Jones, for yeah. the first time, which uh, hopefully he he enjoyed it and uh, he, he wants did. to bring people back. And yeah, you know, he was over there with you, and he he had a wonderful trip. Um, you know, people people sometimes don't believe that you know he could pack he packed so much golf into like nine days. And I, I took some photos in the clubhouse at PK, and I just flicked them to him. I said, "Oh, look, you know, if you if you need these, we, I don't think you took anything, but here's just some quick photos if you need them for any of the stuff that you're putting together for your trip." And he says, and then I've, i I what did I do? I pick I sent him another fi- picture of something of um, Gullen, and he lives. One the first yes. the first time sorry I know I was going somewhere with this you know, Gary uh, the first links experience I had was at Gullen and I remember. Early two thousands, I drove up the back of uh, Gullan there to the yep. seventh hole on, so on
2: top of the hill, seven Yes,
0: and and it was blowing like an absolute hooly, like it was like stand on on an angle like this, and you wouldn't stand over. I wasn't playing golf, but I just wanted to go and see it because it was in my mind. My dad would go to Gullum when he was a kid and all that sort of stuff, and um, it turns out to be very close to where David lives. So I flicked him the photo that I took up there in July. And he said, "Oh, I'll 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 be back there at lunchtime tomorrow. I'll be having lunch there tomorrow." I was like, "Hang on, we've just played golf at Peninsula like a day ago, but you know, he did all this stuff. It's crazy what golf travel is all about, and what what guys like yourself can fit into, you know, travel destinations. It's great.
2: Well, we do, don't we? We try. We're in an area for a short period of time. We try and pack in as much as we can, and worry about the consequences later on. His trip was was." Pretty epic, certainly, and uh, bounced around all over the place but had a really good time. And we would do the same. You did the same over in Scotland and we did the same in the countries we visited.
0: I, uh, I, um... Yeah, he's a great ambassador for, for, for golf, uh, is uh, David, and that UK golf guy who we're talking about. Um, yeah. You can get access to his blog, and you know, he writes so many great articles, um, so check that out. Um, you mentioned Nick. There's a photo of Nick up there, my favorite place. Did you go to Critch Island when you were in Ireland?
2: Not on this trip, but previous trip, Frank Casey from Penner said, "Gary, you have to go to Critch Island." And also, Royal Melbourne member Joe Sheehan said to me, "Gary, you need to go to to Critch Island. Oh, how special is that place! Yeah, really, really cool." I uh,
0: once again, I dismissed it many years ago this is my critch island story uh, th- there's a picture there because um, nick took one and i had two made that one there and one to my auntie and i shipped that across to scotland
2: uh, amazing photo nick took of that place yeah
0: uh, it, extraordinary it, it sits on her wall and it reminds her of my late uncle my dad's twin brother and my my cousin got married on aaron island which is just off the coast there and my uncle would always tell me ross you know when you have to go to Ireland you have to go to this place called Critch Island and I said Critch Island he said it's nine holes and I was like Sorry, Uncle Tommy, you know, (laughs) 18 holes is my limit. You know, like I don't go anywhere for less than 18 holes. And he said, no, 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 you you just get there one day and you go. And we never got the opportunity to go and play there, but um, it was his favourite course in that part of the world. So when I saw Nick's photo, I got one made for me and one sent across to to Scotland for my auntie, which she loves. But um, what a a place, you know. I played there by myself one afternoon as the sun was going down. It was magnificent. Um, Can't wait to get back. Can't wait to to go and see... Uh, talking about Frank Casey, uh, Rosa Penna. Oh, yeah. So, St. Patrick's Links. Yeah, special. Special?
2: Special. The whole thing is special from the family. The Casey family are the most genuine, hospitable, friendly people we know. The accommodation is, is wonderfully warm. The food is exceptional on our first trip there they i was out shooting at night and they brought me a lobster i wanted lobster for dinner they brought out a half lobster to the back of the 18th hole on the old tom morris course and so i could eat there but they're just genuine family two really good golf courses in old old tom and sandy hills but then st patrick's links is doing for that place what it deserves it's turned it into a world-class must-play destination i think it came in at 55 and the uh, Golf Magazine Top 100 uh, recently. It's only going to improve, as more people said, as it matures. It's very, very fun. It's playable. It's testing. Uh, it's got enough width to it to to cater for all the, the wind that you get there. Um, and what they did, I don't know if your listeners know the story, there was a... Pre- the land that was there was owned by another another farmer and he had desires to put 36 holes in there. I think Nicholas courses, if I recall. but that sort of fell over during the GFC and the Casey's got the property and then they started talking with Tom and they Tom Doak and they determined that hey, yeah, let's put just let's just do one quality eighteen hole golf course and that it exudes that all the way. All the way in the logo. How cool's the logo?
0: Oh it's I think everything about Rosa Penna and St. Patrick's Links, uh the logo, the little snake. Um, yeah. And the then the, yeah, the SP and then yeah. the Rosapena. obviously it's got an R as the logo. So R is always going to be uh strike a chord with my heart. Uh, Frank actually, <laughs> Frank sent me a cap out. I looked after one of his staff, um, long-term family members from Downings there, uh, took him down to Peninsula Kingswood with his son the other week. And, um, and Frank sent me a, a nice hat and, uh, and a shirt, which was very nice of him, very kind of him. So thank you, Frank, if you're listening. Um, Gary, you've got a trip coming up. You know, you're heading back to New Zealand. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's another special place. Like, you know, what's uh, what, what? What are your thoughts when you when you think about New Zealand?
2: Oh, New Zealand, you know, pre pre Cowrie Cliffs and Cape Kidnappers, it was probably best known for Paraparam, which is um, wonderful golf course north of Wellington. I love Paraparam, Alec Russell, design, but you then get these resort-style courses, Kauri and Kidnappers, that are visually off the charts and uh, expensive as well, but visually off the charts. But now there's this extra breed of course coming in. Tara Et is north of north of Auckland, and the new course that Tara Et being very very private, but Tiara Links is the new sort of. Public golf course, high-end public golf course that I'm going up there to do some photography and play, and and uh, and excited about that. And then there's another course. Is it the North Course coming on online maybe next year in the same area? So um, TRO Links is um, that's the so that's Core Crenshaw or Doak? I'm, that's Core Crenshaw, I think it's Core.
0: Is it? Uh, well. Uh, One of the Renaissance Golf uh, teams yeah. built because Angela and Clyde were across there doing it. I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, they were. T- I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's Tierra.
2: Yeah. Um, sorry for all those aficionados yeah. no. out there who are just going to shake their heads and go, "How can <laughs> these guys do a podcast? They don't know anything about anything." <laughs> um, so they're they're great, but I'm also going to photograph um, Royal Auckland, which has um, been redone. Uh, and Nicholas Redo. Amalgamation of the Grange Golf Club and Royal Auckland Golf Club, and they've got a facility there. Now, so it, that that'll be exciting.
0: Is yeah. that complete? That that obviously is complete. That yeah, Royal, yeah, that, yeah, that's
2: complete. It's complete. It's grown in. I was due to do the shoot maybe a year ago, but COVID got in the way. So that'll be nice seeing seeing that. New Zealand's a cool place. And then you go down south to Queenstown, and that's special as well.
0: Uh, TRI is uh, Tom, designed by Tom Doke, and the other there's two courses. Um, so TRI is, uh, TRI links promises the world to say, two courses, Don Doak and the other by Bill Corr and uh, Ben Crenshaw. Yeah. There we go. Um, sorry for the golf aficionados. I'm um, talking about architects. You know, do, do you have a, you know, you've, you've seen, you've seen the classic golden age architects, you know, I think uh, probably in the States, you know, we haven't talked about the States really at all. What's your, what's your favorite course over there? There's one. Oh, hands so okay. <laughs> down. Outside, yeah. outside of Cyprus, outside <laughs> of we can come back and finish on Cyprus, and you can, you can leave us with your thoughts on oh. Cyprus. But some of the other courses there that you've had the opportunity to see.
2: Oh wow! that um, the whole north northeast is great. Sort of places like your pine pine valley is very special, very intimidating, but very special. Uh, Marion. Uh, out on Long Island, your Shinnecock, your Nationals, Stones, those kinds of places. I we had a big trip planned in 2020 to to do a bunch of stuff in the US and Canada that got cancelled. So I haven't been to to the interior, being your sandhills and your prairie dunes and all of that stuff. But our mutually good friend John Cornish has has been and done all of those and played the top 100. Um, so there's plenty of places I need I need to get to. There's, there's a lot lot of good stuff there. But Cyprus stands out for me as the place I could play um, well, every day for the rest, rest of my life. But there are some other nice areas, granted.
0: When, when did you first see Cyprus? I first saw Cyprus
2: in 1985. I went over for a golf trip with Dad, and we stayed at the Inn at Spanish Bay. And we played uh, Pebble Beach and Spanish Bay and Spyglass, but we couldn't get on to Cyprus. And I just, I was desperate to to play there. You know, you drive, for those who, who know, you drive on the 17-mile drive and you're pretty much, the tee shot on the first hole at Cyprus, hits straight over the 17-mile drive, and then you come round and you go down to Fanshawe Beach, I think it is, and that's sort of where there's a pathway that leads you to the 15th hole. So just quietly between all... You and I only, don't mention it. I snuck out one day and I press past onto the golf course along that pathway to the 14th, along the, from the 14th to the 15th tee. And you, you're fearful that someone's going to shoot you or you're going to get <laughs> uh, strung up by somebody. But that just, just did it for me, just visually. And, and the contrast of, of holes, Ross, um, the stuff through the forest, the stuff through the dunes, and then obviously the ocean, ocean stuff is special as well.
0: And when did you first uh, get the opportunity to phot- um, photograph it? To play it,
2: uh, play it or photograph it? Um, or both? Yeah, photog- uh, played it a, a couple of years later and I've been fortunate to have played it a number of times and photographing just uh, the times that I'm there with with member, member friends. So it's um, one of those places that is so visually arresting. Uh, it's just exciting. Um, down the road, also MPCC, Monterey Peninsula Country Club. Mm-hmm. It's another wonderful 36-hole facility. So that whole that whole region has got some pretty nice stuff going for it.
0: Well, Gary, I'm conscious of your time. Uh, busy getting ready to to go on another adventure. You know, we talked about America, and people asked me. Said I went. People asked me when did I discover uh, that I like taking photos of golf club um, uh, golf courses. And it was back in 1987 uh, with a box, not i I'm going to call it a box brownie, but you remember the, you know, as a kid going across there, the Kodak um, disposable paper cameras. Yeah. And I have some, I have some photos of, uh, that I took of PJ West. I was lucky enough to get a game at PJ West with the host family that I was staying with. And, and... You know, when I look back, I thought, well, I must have had an interest back then because, you know, to, to make a photo that looked pretty okay like that with a little cardboard uh, disposable camera, there must have been something there and 30, 40, 40 years later, uh, it starts to come out and I've got all the gear and no idea now. Um, no, not at all. <laughs> uh, Gary, there's one last topic. Hole-in-one whispering. Now, I know that Golf Select you sell hole-in-one insurance. <laughs> yeah yeah we, well, I would have hoped that we would have had a game of golf together by now and yeah you know, very much hope because I think most of the people that I know that you know um end up having a hole in one when they play with you
2: yeah it's happened a few times um quite interesting so the aforementioned John Cornish we were playing playing the east coast uh, out here where where we live of Royal Melbourne and uh we started we lived near the um, near the 14th hole so we we started on the 14th hole, so we play through from 14 through to 18, and then one through to 13. Come up to the last shot of the day, which is the 13th hole, which is a little great little par three, um, in into the area where the Murray River gums are. It's a lovely setting. And Cornish steps up with his with his pitching which I think it was, and just goes bang, goes bang, dribble, 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 and we think it goes into the hole. So he he made a hole in one in the last shot of the day. And, that was his second or third, I think, and I'd never had one. I was jealous beyond belief. And then uh, about 12 months ago, I was out playing in a comp on that particular hole, and I had a hole in one uh, on that uh, on 13 days. So I was very, very happy, and then I followed it up with another one on the same hole three months later. But that one apparently doesn't count because I was playing on my own but I reckon it still does count, yeah,
0: don't you? I'd give it to you, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'd give anyone a hole in one. I haven't had one since 1987. To the, and talking about Palm Springs... Wow. At 1987, um 1987, uh, talking about Palm Springs, the only other time I've been close is on, uh, you know, the PJ West, the Alcatraz hole, the 17th. Yeah. Oh,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It, well, I played there the week after Trevino... Jack Nicholas and I can't remember the other two. Whether it was Fuzzy Zeller and someone else played there in the Skins yep. game, which they used to have. Yep. And Trevino went for, to the back, obviously with the back tees. Hit a six iron, knocked it in the hole. I was there the week after the week, the, and I went to the back tees with my host father. I said, "I'm going to the back. I'm going to hit a six iron. And I'm going to hit it in the hole." And I hit, I thinned it. Um, I'm not sure if did John Cornish hit his beautifully or did he thin his.
2: Oh, yeah. He'll claim that he, he yeah he'll claim that he hit it just the way he wants, but I reckon it was a bit skinny. But then again, in defence of John, my hole in one was also a skinny shot. Okay,
0: I remember I thought
2: one of and the maybe two... that's the way you do it.
0: Well, yeah. I, I thinned mine and it literally was teetering on the edge of the hole. That was the, the only other time that I've been anywhere near a hole in mine, both in the same years. Um, but then there was one other hole in one that you helped whisper and I was somewhat involved the day before. Our great friend Fergal from uh, US was out here. (laughs) Sorry, of course. (laughs) Of course, yes. So so you want to talk through that one? I leave leave Fergal and we play 36 holes at Peninsula Kingswood, a great Irishman, member at Port Marnock, wonderful company, fantastic to spend a day with him, just picking his brains about all the golf courses, much like we're doing now. He jumps on a plane, heads up to Sydney, you pick him up, and what happens?
2: We, uh, we pick him up. We drive up to a place called Elliston, which is four-and-a-half-hour drive. Um, we're hosted by a, a good friend of ours, and um, we're playing around. And the sixth hole is probably the best path through, most visually spectacular path three at, um, at Elliston. Uh, it's got a little creek that runs down the left-hand side. It's got a green that sits beautifully and bunkers up on the right. So Fergal steps up with, I don't know what he hits. The guy hits it an absolute long distance. So if I'm hitting a seven iron, he's probably hitting a wedge. And he just hits it and his slam dunks it and goes in the hole for a one. So... It's a bad thing because we haven't stopped hearing about it for the last four months, five months. It comes up all the time. I'm sure it does. You uh, want to be humble, don't you? I think you should be humble, more gracious
0: about it. Oh, no, look, if you have a hole in mine uh, at uh, Elliston, you know, you've know you got to tell the world. But, uh, um, Gary, we need to play golf because I need another hole in mine. I haven't had one since 1987, if you heard me say that. Um, so let's try and do that one day
2: let's play pk i still haven't played it I photographed it but haven't played it okay. i was a member there for member there for 15 years the old one so i love the work that's been been done there and i think ocm and mike cocking in particular they do some great stuff
0: it's a pretty easy course to, to photograph no it is it's it's very, <laughs> very photogenic easy. yeah yeah
2: um, yeah and you would see it I, I see the photos you post and i just go wow love the angles love the mood that The feeling—it's—it is a very special place.
0: No, it certainly helped me learn a little bit about trying to frame up something, and just to get a little bit of insight into the world that you—that you do such a wonderful job at creating. And all of the colleagues that are in that golf photography space, as we said before, you know, a wonderful uh, group of ambassadors for golf. But Gary, you are one of Australia's best, and. uh, and I really appreciate your time uh, coming on and sharing a whole bunch of random and eclectic stories, but, you know, I'm sure there's many, many more, but let's go and have that game of golf one day.
2: Indeed, Roscoe. Thank you. Thanks for the time and thanks to all the listeners for listening and watching.
0: I'll put the links to where you can get – Access to Gary, if you don't already know, his Instagram. But if you're thinking about having a golf day, the golf select business that Gary owns and operates with a whole cast of people, including Moore and his wonderful wife, um, if you're thinking about any of that, you can get in touch with Gary there. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
2: Thanks, Roscoe.